Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. see you. Man, what a great time of worship we've already had today. I'm so thankful that you're here, and uh, we love to celebrate the truth of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3 with me this morning and celebrate that. God has been good to us. One of the ways God is good is that He preserved His Word for us. He tells us who He is. He lets us know how to follow Him and worship Him in spirit and in truth as He asks. And so uh, we are, if you're new to our church, if this is your first Sunday here or you've been with us over the holidays a little bit, uh, we are going through a teaching series on the book of Revelation. And we've taken a few weeks to break from that to uh, celebrate Christmas and New Year's and some of those things. so we're getting back into that now, and as we've journeyed through these opening couple of chapters in Revelation, where we've been is looking at the churches that Jesus wrote letters to. And you have to remember that Revelation is called the, uh, the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, right? So it is the revelation of Jesus. That's what the whole book is about. It's telling us who Jesus is and pointing to Jesus. And so we want to make sure we know and understand who Jesus is and that we point to him. And he helps us do that as he writes letters to these churches. And so So we've spent quite a bit of time going through each of these letters to the churches. You'll see a map on the screen here that kind of helps you know where we've been. We've already covered the first five churches in uh, this area of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And so we've talked about Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, or Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, and Sardis. Today we're going to talk about Philadelphia. And so as we get into this, we kind of ask ourselves the question, and we'll recap just a little bit of saying, well, why are we spending so much time looking at these churches? Why not just kind of gloss over them and get to the quote-unquote the good stuff, which is all the future stuff we believe is going to happen? That's what most people, when they think about Revelation, they go, oh yeah, Revelation is all about God's judgment and the end of the world and the doom of people that don't know God and follow Him. And so that's what we're kind of excited about and anticipating is what happens when we see that stuff and the judgments of God and the bowls and the trumpets and all these different things. And, and yet God spends a lot of time early on in the book just writing letters to his church. And so the question we have to ask is, why does God invest that much time? And, and a few answers that we think about is this, that number one, God had specific messages to speak to the individual churches in their context and in their historical setting. And so if that's true, then we need to also be aware of that message. What was Jesus saying to these churches, and why is that significant and important? The second thing is this, that is those messages to those churches serve us today, both in encouraging us and in warning us that Jesus had a message to his church, and he wants us to know how to live before him. And so in each of the churches that he writes letters to, he'll say something to go, I want to commend you in this, 
but I've got some issues that I want us to deal with over here. There's a problem. There's an area that you're not living for me the right way. And there's some things that I want to address of where you are. And so for us, we see these same things and we go, if Jesus wrote to the churches in that time period and said, here's how I want you to live for me, but here's the dangers of not living for me, or here's the pitfalls, some things you need to be aware of, then we as a church need to be aware of those same things because we can fall easily into the same traps and temptations and sins that these early churches did. And so they help us to be an encouragement, but also a warning. And then last, third, before we move into things that have future implications, we need to know how to live in anticipating the future that God has for us. If we know what's coming, and he's given us a revelation of future events, then we need to prepare ourselves to live in those times and for those times and through some of those things. And because of that reality, Jesus writes these churches. So this week, we're going to look at Jesus's message to the church in Philadelphia in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Uh, Philadelphia was one of the youngest cities. Actually, it is the youngest city of these seven cities that we've been talking about. Uh, it was originally um, placed and given its important role strategically because of its location. Philadelphia was situated on a major Roman road and was known as the gateway to the east. And so if you wanted to travel through this eastern area, you would go through Philadelphia. It was the gateway. Uh, Attalus II, who was the king of Pergamum, founded the city in 150 BC, and he intended it to be a dissemination point of the Greek culture. So because of its strategic location, this is how we're going to get Greek culture into the eastern parts of the provinces. We're going to take language and push it through here. We're going to take culture and push it through here. Our practices of worship and push it through here. Our practices of warfare and push it through here. This was a strategic key city locationally for the spread of the Greek culture. Uh, the city was named Philadelphia because of the love and the loyalty that Attalus, who's the king, the founder of the city, Attalus had this love for his older brother, Eumenes. Uh, and Rome, at one point in time, tried to get Attalus to, to turn his back on Eumenes and, and sell his brother out, and Attalus wouldn't do it. And because of his loyalty and his love for his brother, the people, when they founded this city, the people started calling it Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. They nicknamed him Philadelphus. And so they called his city Philadelphia. Now, when we think of Philadelphia, we think of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it's the city of brotherly love where they all hate each other, right? I mean, there's not a whole lot of cities where people throw snowballs at Santa Claus, but that happened in history. And so uh, that's just kind of part of the deal. And so uh, when you think about Philadelphia, uh, that's what we think of. But this city was known originally because of the brotherly love between Attalus and Eumenes and his desire to stay true to his brother. Now, one of the problems that the city faced geographically was that it was in a major fault line. So it experienced a lot of earthquakes. When we talked about Sardis, we talked about the fact that they had a lot of earthquakes. Uh, historians actually talked about the city of Philadelphia and said that it was a city of earthquakes. <laughs> that was how bad of the fault line that they were sitting on. And so they experienced all of these uh, earthquakes and it would be so, such severe aftershocks that people would literally have to move out of the city and go farm soil, the, the fertile volcanic soil outside of the city, just in order to stay in that region. Because they were afraid of living in the city where things might collapse on them. After an earthquake, the aftershocks, there might be problems there. And so they were displaced from their city for periods of time. In 17 AD, the city was almost completely wiped out by an earthquake. And Rome stepped in and said, you know what, we're going to help you rebuild your city. We want to, to do that for you. And, and to rebuild, we're also going to, for five years, we're going to allow you not to be under our taxation. And so Rome gave them a free pass for five years of not paying uh, to the empire. 
And so to say thank you for that, the city of Philadelphia for a period of time renamed themselves Neo-Caesarea in order of the Caesar, in order of the empire. And so we want to thank you for not making us pay this tribute tax. And so to honor you, we're going to rename our city for a brief period of time. And so with all of these things kind of taking place, that's the historical context that I want to look at today in what Jesus has to say to his church who's living in the city of Philadelphia. So with that as the background, let's look at Revelation chapter 3 and start in verse 7. We'll go through verse 13. Jesus writes and says, To the angel or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as Jesus writes this message to his church, the first thing that we see that he does with all of the churches is he introduces himself. He says, here's what I want you to know specifically about me in your context, in your time for your church. And the first thing he says is, I want you to know that I am the holy one and I am the true one. And so Jesus identifies himself as being holy and true. And he's also the one that holds the key of David. And so the holy one, when Jesus talks to him, uh, of himself in that way, he says, the holy one describes Jesus as deity. He's God in flesh, and yet he's distinct and he's different from any other God. And as he comes into this city and he writes to this city, he says, here's what I want you to know. I am holy. I'm distinct. I'm different. There's no one like me. The Greek gods are not real gods. The Hebrew gods, uh, or excuse me, the, uh, the Roman gods, not real gods. All of these different things that people worship uh, are not true, genuine gods. I am the holy one. I am the God of all gods, the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings. Set apart, I am distinct, I am different. And because of who I am, I want you to know that in worshiping me, in knowing that I am holy and set apart, that I want the same thing for you. That you're to be holy and set apart. In your society, in your culture, you're to be distinct from them. You're to be called out from them to be with me and to be like me. And so Jesus issues this church an understanding of who he is as being holy, and he calls them to be like him. He says, if I'm holy, Peter says it this way in, in his uh, epistle. He says, if God is holy, we should be holy. Be holy, therefore, because he's holy. Come out from the culture. Be separate from sin. Do things that are different than everyone else, because that's what Jesus is like. So Jesus says, I'm deity. I am God in human flesh. I've come to pay for the sins of the world. I've come to reveal the Father in heaven to you. I've come to send the Spirit of God into your life. Jesus is different than any other God. Christianity is different than any other religion. And part of the reason for that is the second thing he says. Not only is he holy, but he's true. And in revealing himself as true, he's saying, I'm authentic and I'm faithful. 
And because I'm true, all of the promises of God that have been made to his people and to the church, those will be fulfilled. There's no way to not have God come through on his promises. He says, I'm holy, but I'm also true. Everything I say to you, I'll do. I'll complete. I'll fulfill. In me is the fulfillment of all of these things. And so we can hang our faith on in any and every situation. We can hang on because of our trust in Jesus to hang on to us. And so he's writing this church and he's saying, I want you to know that I see you as a church being faithful to me. And I want you to know that you can remain faithful and stay faithful because I'm going to be faithful as well. That's a great promise for us. Because we're going to face times of hardship and we're going to face trials and we're going to have temptation to sin and we're going to struggle with sin in our life. And yet Jesus says in those times where you're suffering, where you're going through difficult things, or even when life is great, instead of taking that and saying, oh, life is so great because of how good I am and I've done all the right things and made all the right decisions. He goes, even in the times where life is good, you put your faith and trust in me because I'm the giver of all good things. And so Jesus says, listen, you stay faithful and you can stay faithful in any and every situation because you know I'm faithful. And if I'm faithful, then you can bet that all the promises of God are going to be completed and are going to be fulfilled. So anything that God tells us in his word, anything that God reveals to us in his spirit will come true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul wrote and said, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And so here's what that means. God's promises are finalized or fulfilled in Jesus. He says as many promises, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They're fulfilled in him. All of the covenants of the Old Testament, all of the promises of the Old Testament, everything that's told to us in the New Testament about heaven and about eternity and about future with God, they're all fulfilled and finalized in Jesus Christ. He says he is the yes He's the ultimate answer. He's the final answer of all of God's promises. And he's faithful to those things. And then he says in in him, and so through him, our amen is also on the table. It's spoken by us to the glory of God. Our amen is also yes. Amen just means we agree or yes. So when we pray, and at the end of the prayer, we say amen, we're not just saying, well, that's like the period on the end of the prayer, amen, period. We're going, hey, I prayed all these things, and I say amen in agreement with God. And when we say amen jointly, we agree with one another. And so when saying amen, he's going, Jesus is the ultimate yes. And then when we accept the promises of Jesus, we say amen and we agree with the yes that God has placed here for us. And so in all of that, Jesus is telling us, I'm holy, I'm true. It's important for us to know that today because it tells us that the God we follow is distinct and different from any other God that the world holds out. And he alone is powerful enough to make all of his promises come true. So the promises in this life and in the life to come, we can count on. We can bank on because of Jesus. But Jesus also reveals himself to the church by saying that he holds the key of David. And when we hear that, we kind of go, all right, the key of David, what you open, no one can shut. What you shut, no one can open. I don't know where the key of David came from. I'm not sure about the key of David. What is the key of David like? Where did you get the key of David? Did David come and hand it to you? I thought David was dead. Where did you get this key? I know how to get keys. I go, if I want a new key, I go to Home Depot and they make me a new key. And that's where I get my keys. Where did the key of David come from? I know about the key of death and hell and the grave that Jesus said he had once he came out of death 
He said, I've conquered death. I hold the keys of death, hell and the grave, Hades. I've got all those keys. So was David's key on that keychain? Like, did that where David's key come from? I don't know where David's key came from. How did you get it? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Repetitively. Because <laughs> listen, we hear that. And because most of the time when we read scripture, we read through the lens of the New Testament. Many of us probably are not scholarly in the Old Testament to our detriment as believers in Christ. But when the first century Christians heard this, they would have immediately gone, oh, the key of David, that's spoken about in our Hebrew scriptures. We know exactly what the key of David is. They would have thought back to 2 Kings chapter 17. And they would have thought of Isaiah. I believe it's chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22 through 25. Let's read this uh, together in just a second if you want to turn there and look at that. But in, in the Hebrew history, Assyria came to attack Israel, attack Jerusalem. And they built up fortification ramps against the city and they taunted and mocked Israel for a period of time. And finally, the king sent out uh, an envoy to go and meet with the leader of the Assyrian uh, army. And a man was in the, uh, the group. His name was Eliakim. He was sent out and, and Eliakim goes and he hears the, the Assyrian uh, military leader just bash the God of Israel and the people of Israel and and it's going to be bad. And he, he declares, hey, we're going to wipe you guys out. We're going to get rid of you from the face of the earth. But God miraculously intervenes in that situation. In fact, he basically eliminates the Assyrian Empire uh, or the army from that location. They have to retreat home. And when they get home, the leader of the Assyrian Empire is killed. And so God sets up peace for his people. But in doing so, he makes a promise through Isaiah, and he talks about this man named Eliakim. And he goes, through Eliakim, who's not the king, he's a messenger of the king, he works for the king, he's, in his, he's his palace administrator, he says Eliakim is going to be given the key of the city of David. And what he shuts, no one can open, and what he opens, no one can shut. And so it, basically this prophecy about Eliakim is saying, he's going to be the, the guy in charge of controlling who comes in and who goes out of Jerusalem. And who has access to Israel and who's shut out of Israel. And if he lets anybody in, they get to come in. If he keeps anybody out, they don't get to come in. And so God gives Eliakim the key of the city of David. In Isaiah, he says it this way. He says, I will place on his shoulder, Eliakim, the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So I'll drive him like a peg into a firm place. And he'll become a seat of honor for the house of his father, and all the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and its offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to the jars. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and it will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. And so Eliakim's name literally means to raise up or God sets up. And when we think about this, God raised up a leader who would have control over the city of Jerusalem. He says, in Eliakim, I'm going to drive him like a peg into a place where he's going to be the one who has control to keep people out or to let people in. And Eliakim is a type of Messiah in the Old Testament. He's pointing toward the one who will come and rescue his people and keep them safe and be their shield. But if you see at the end of that passage, it says, in that day declares the Lord Almighty, the peg, Eliakim, that was driven into the firm place will give way. It'll be sheared off and it will fall. So in other words, he's not the ultimate fulfillment of the Messiah. There's still one to come who's going to protect Israel divinely. So when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, he starts talking about having the key of David. And not only the key of David, but he says, I have the king of the kingdom of heaven. 
And he talks about himself as the one who has the gift of giving people access to God or to keep them out. That through Jesus as to how people come to God or are left away from God. And so when it comes to the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has died on the cross, been buried in a tomb, come back to life, and ascended to be with the Father, before he left to ascend back to heaven to rule and reign at the right hand of God, he told Peter, Peter, I'm going to give you this key. I'm going to give you the key to the, to the kingdom of David. And so look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. This is before Jesus has gone to the cross. He's with his disciples. And he says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he orders his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So after Jesus ascended back to heaven following his resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. They were all gathered in an upper room together waiting for this gift that Jesus had promised to them. And when the Spirit of God came on them, the disciples went out into the city of Jerusalem at one of their major feasts. And Peter begins to, to preach the gospel. And Jesus had said, it's on this rock that I'll build my church. Peter was known, his name was given to him to be the rock. Jesus is saying, you're going to start out the church, Peter, and on this rock. But the real rock of the message is the declaration of who Jesus is. You're the Christ, the Son of God. So on that rock, I'm going to build my church, the declaration of who Jesus is. And so he says, I'm going to give you the keys to make that known to people. And if you make it known, then they have access in. And if you don't make it known, then they're shut out. And the same key is given to his church today. Peter was just the first in line to be able to share the gospel and the good news. But that key is passed on to us. And we have that responsibility of sharing our faith, of sharing the gospel, of telling people who Christ is, to let them know how to build their life on the rock-solid foundation of a confession of faith in Jesus. And so are we willing to share the gospel and to continue to perpetrate the church and to continue to carry it out? So that's what this key of the kingdom is about. And when God says, I have, or when Jesus says, I have the key of the kingdom of David, this is what he's talking about. It's the kingdom of David, the kingdom of heaven, it's the kingdom, it's for salvation. Because I have the power to have people come in and they come through me. That's how we get to the Father. So as we get back to Revelation, Jesus says he holds this key of David and what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open. That means that Jesus has sovereign control over who gets into his kingdom and who's left out of his kingdom. And here's why that message was important for the people there in Philadelphia. Because many of them were Jewish people who had turned to faith in Christ. And when they became followers of Jesus, of Yeshua, the Messiah, their synagogues would kick them out and say, if you're going to believe in Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, you can no longer have a place with us. You no longer have access into God's kingdom because we're the controllers of God's kingdom. We're the Jewish leaders and the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We have control of who gets in and gets out, and we're kicking you out. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're out. And Jesus writes to his church and he says, hey, take heart. They don't have control over who's in and out of the kingdom. That role is reserved for me. 
I have control over who's in and out. And what I shut, no one can open. And what I open, no one can shut. So you follow after me. That's good news for us today as well. That regardless of what we hear in our culture, what we hear in society, what people say it takes to get to heaven in our culture, every path leads to heaven, right? There's such a pluralistic way of, of having salvation. And it's whatever everybody believes is just fine and everybody can believe whatever they want to and as long as it's good for them, it's going to get them there ultimately. And Jesus says, that's not the way. You hold on to my way because I have the sovereign authority of granting people access to my kingdom or not. And so for us, we need to know that. Now, as we get into this uh, church this morning, so far, we've covered one verse. Um, you're welcome. Uh, this is why it's taking us so long to get through this book. But today, we're going to go through these last remaining verses together, and we're going to go through a little bit more quickly here um, to see what Jesus is writing to this church. This is the smallest church of the seven churches in this area, but it's one of only two that Jesus praises with no condemnation. Most of the churches, he'll say, I have this in your favor, but I have this against you. This is going well. This is an area you need to improve. When it comes to the church in Philadelphia, he only praises them. He tells them good things. To many people, this is the model church. And so as we move through these remaining verses, we find that the smallest and weakest church, Jesus actually calls them weak. I know your deeds. I know you're weak. That's great, right? Like you love hearing that message. Oh, you guys are a great church. You're little and weak, but that's great, right? And so Jesus says this to him. He goes, even though you're weak, I have the most promises for you. And so in our weakness, we find strength in Christ. And that's what he wants us to see. And so I want us to read this together. Verse 8, he writes to the church and he says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you've not denied my name. I'll make those of you who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they're liars. I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to follow along either on our app or writing some things down. There are three main promises that God gives. The first promise that Jesus gives to his church was that God would open the door of the gospel through them. And he says, you're in this strategic location, and although your strength is little, I'm going to open a door for you. I'm going to open the door of the gospel to flow through you. Now remember, strategically, why Attalus put this city right here. He saw it as a gateway to the east. This is how we're going to take culture and push it on. This is how we're going to take language and push it on. This is how we're going to take warfare and push it on. We're going to continue moving the empire this direction, and it's going to go through Philadelphia. Jesus sees this city, and he goes, the same thing is true of the gospel. Because of your location, because of your setting, because you're on this major Roman road that pushes people through you to other parts of, this, of the nation, other parts of the empire, I'm going to use you to advance the gospel. I'm going to open a door here for you. And although you're weak and although you're small, you're going to have a major impact on the growth of the kingdom as people spread to the east. As the gospel of Jesus takes root and moves forward, it's going to go through Philadelphia. He says, I'm opening a door of opportunity for you, and I'm giving you this chance. Jesus knew they had little strength, but they remained faithful and obedient to God, and they wouldn't deny the name of Jesus 
to the Jewish leaders, to the Roman leaders, they stood faithful to Jesus. Here's what's great about that. God doesn't need a mega church to advance the gospel. He needs mega faithful, obedient people. Because that's what I'm looking for. And that's great for us personally as a church too, right? I mean, we're not a mega church. We don't have all the resources in the world. We don't have thousands of people who come to our church. And yet Jesus doesn't look at his churches and go, well, because you're small, I'll use you a little, but not a lot. And we'll just give the blessings to all these giant churches because they're obviously amazing. And we're thankful for God's church that grows to incredible sizes. But it doesn't discount the small church. It doesn't discount the opportunity that God puts in front of us. He goes, I'm opening the same door of opportunity for you at Grace Fellowship that I'm opening to every other church to take the gospel to the nations. That's what we're called to do. And so God is opening that door of opportunity for us. He's looking for faithful obedience to him. And if we'll maintain faithful obedience, he'll continue to open the doors of opportunity to spread the gospel and to use our lives for that purpose. And we're also a young church. We've been around in existence for about 16 or 17 years, if I remember right. Not a very old church at all. We're just teenagers as a church, right? We're in the weird stage. <laughs> Things are really crazy, weird. That's why we cheer and clap when we open up the Bible. It's just weird stuff. Like teenagers do this kind of crazy stuff. And Jesus goes, listen, I want you to know, this is how I kind of think about our church, that we don't have the long history of some churches. I've served in churches that were 80, 90, 100 plus years old. And they had this long history of being able to track and see what has God done in our church throughout the ages, throughout the generations, throughout the time. That we've seen how he's used us. He's continued to help us to be faithful in this community and take the gospel into this community. Our church doesn't have that long history. But here's what I want to encourage us with today. I want us to think about being in that place 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And saying we have a history of faithful obedience to God that we can track back to our teenage years. Like the uh, analogy, when I was in student ministry, that's when many people come to faith in Christ, is during their teenage years. They'll have this kind of aha moment. The light bulbs will go off. Jesus makes sense to them. They recognize their sin. They understand their need for a Savior, and they'll come into faith in Christ. And then it's a matter of saying, will you now, as you make that commitment to Christ, will you walk with Him faithfully for the rest of your life? That's what He calls us to. And so in our teenage years as a church, we can commit and say, let's follow Jesus faithfully in obedience. And generations from now, when they look back and they go, what's been the success of this church? It's faithfulness. It's obedience. It's living in victory in Christ. It's maintaining our race. It's following Jesus in everything. So let's strive for that. Let's push for that. The second promise Jesus makes to this church is that he will keep them spiritually protected in the hour of trial. If you look at verse 10, he says, Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth, the whole world, to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, a lot of people interpret that as a way to show that the church is not going to be part of the tribulation period. They'll go, okay, look, we see that keep my commands, endure. I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole earth. And people will look at that and go, okay, that means we're not going to be here hearing what the rest of the book of Revelation is kind of about. We get a pass from that. That's not exactly what it's saying. I want us to look at something that's specifically mentioned here. The phrase, to keep you from, in its Greek form, is only found in one other place in the entire New Testament. Jesus prays for his disciples on the night that he's going to be arrested and the next day crucified. 
He's going to go through a long trial process illegally, be found guilty even though he wasn't, and he's going to be crucified. And in doing so, Jesus, on the night before all that happens, he prays for his disciples. Do you remember what he said? John chapter 17, verse 15. Jesus is praying, and he says, Father, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. In other words, I don't want you just to pull them out of trouble and trial and tribulation. I want you to protect them through it. Let them walk with you in obedience through it. It's the same Greek phrase that Jesus uses here when he tells his church, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. It doesn't mean necessarily that he's going to completely pull us out. It means that through the trials we face, through the tribulations that we face, through the temptations that we have, that Jesus will keep us spiritually protected. Might we go through physical suffering? Yes. Christians all over the world are suffering in physical ways. In whatever kind of suffering that we face, though, Jesus says, I will always protect you from spiritual harm. You stay faithful to me. You stay obedient to me, and I will watch over you. I will keep you not from the wrath of people, but from the wrath of God. The wrath of God has already been paid for. There is no wrath of God on us who believe in Christ and have placed our faith in him. Jesus paid for that wrath. He took our place. So we have freedom in that. The great Christian hope has never been removal from trouble. The great Christian hope is resurrection from death. That's what we put our hope in. We're going to go through trials. We're going to go through tribulation. We're going to go through suffering and pain. Jesus never promised us he would keep us from that and void those things from our life. But he said, I can promise you that on the other side of those things is resurrection from the dead that's eternal. That's what we bank on. That's what we hope in. And there's one final promise that Jesus makes to the church at Philadelphia. The third promise Jesus gives his church is his eternal presence with them. He says, I want you to know that I'm always going to be there with you and you're going to be with me. Verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. So hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on them my new name. So whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus tells them, to those of you who are victorious, and that just means those of you who hold on to your faith to the end, you endure and you follow after me forever. He says, to those who are victorious, I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. I mean, that's great. I don't know if you've ever seen pillars or not, but they hold things up and they're meant to be permanent, right? Like if you go to somewhere and there's pillars and you start knocking them out, it's load bearing, things are going to start falling. Not a good idea. Leave the pillars alone. Right? And so Jesus goes, this is the same thing that I want you to know. That when you follow me, that if you endure and you're victorious in this life, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. I will plant you and never again will you be removed from it. You can never be taken out of it. So for those who had been persecuted and removed from the synagogue, who had been displaced from the city because of all the activity of earthquakes, because this is good news for you guys, all the displacement, all the being separated from the things that you know, he goes, that'll never happen again in the kingdom because I'm going to plant you as a pillar in the temple of my God. Then he says this, because I'm also going to write my name on you, not just once, but three different times. He's like, I'm going to put it on your front, put it on your back, write it on your shoe like Andy. It's just going to say, God, it's going to be so cool, right? And it's going like, that was a Toy Story joke. (laughs) Catch up, people. All right. 
And so he goes, listen, I want you to know I'm going to put my name on you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't put my name on things that don't belong to me. Like if I lend you a book or something, it's got my name in it. I don't expect you to cross that out and put your name in it and be like, oh, now it's my book. No, that's not how it works. I don't know what you were like as teenagers. I never spray painted my name on anything that didn't belong to me. Maybe you did. I don't know. People like doing that kind of stuff. We put our name on things that belong to us. I signed the papers to buy my house. It's got my name on it. It's mine. Jesus says the same thing. He says, if you're faithful to me and obedient to me and you walk with me, I'll put my God's name on you. And I'll put the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that's coming out of heaven to be here with you. I'll put the name of the city of God on you. Not only will you know God, you'll know where you're going to reside eternally. And then I'll also put my new name. Jesus is going to get this new name in eternity. He goes, I'll put that on you so that you know you've got an eternal belonging to me. You're mine. I purchased you through the cross by my blood. And I want you to know where you're going to spend eternity. And I want you to know that eternity is going to be good. And you're going to be rooted and planted with me forever. So this morning as we wrap this up, I just want to ask you to think about that for yourself. We not only get this new name, we get a new nature that goes with it. And following Christ changes us. To be a follower of Christ isn't a one-time decision that you go, yeah, you know what, I don't want to go to hell when I die, so I'm going to say this prayer. I'm going to feel like that eternally secures me to be with God forever, and then I'm just going to go on my own way and do my own thing and never really think about that decision again because I committed my life to God at that moment, and that was all it took. All of Scripture points to the fact that following Jesus is not just about being justified by Him, but being sanctified by Him over the rest of our life, that it's a perpetual pursuit of Jesus that we follow him in obedience, that we're victorious by getting to the crown at the end. Did you notice that he said, nobody's going to take your crown? Don't let them take your crown from you. You don't get the crown in the middle of the race. You get the crown at the end of the race. So get to the end of the race. Follow after Jesus the rest of your life. Pursue him. But if you don't have that assurance today of your own personal salvation, this message is one that hits at our heart. Jesus is trying to tell us, I want you to be with me for eternity. I've made a way for you to be with me for eternity, and I want you to stay with me for all of your life and into the life to come. And if that's not true of you today, and the Spirit of God is pressing into your heart, I would ask you to make today the day that you make a commitment to Christ and say, I, I want you to forgive me of my sins, and I, I want to be your child for the rest of my life. Are you going to do everything perfectly from here forward? No. Are you still going to sin? Absolutely. Are there going to be trials and temptations and problems that come? Yes. But we can follow Jesus in obedience and be faithful to him. When we fail, we, we ask for forgiveness and we're granted that. And we get back up and we get back on the path. We keep running the race. So today, if you've not made that commitment to Christ or you're not sure what it looks like, to have a security in your life for your eternity. And we don't want you to leave here today without knowing that. We want to ask you to talk after the service is over, either to myself or one of our staff members, one of our leaders. We would love to share with you the message of hope that can be found in Jesus. 
If it's awkward to talk to somebody in this setting, at the bottom of the card you were given when you came in, the connection card, there's a place on the back to check. I want to know more about a relationship with Jesus. Just check that, fill out the information there, and drop it in one of our boxes or hand it to me, and we'll get with you later this week. We want you to know, we want you to know that Christ's name is written on you, that the city of God is your permanent, eternal dwelling place, and that Jesus' new name is going to be on you for eternity. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.